It was the first day of the fall semester. Escaping from my car radio speakers was the latest news on the Dow Jones slide. It resonated with the direction of my enthusiasm, which was plummeting just as fast. I had just turned in grades last week for the intense six-week summer class that is squeezed in between the two main semesters. That morning, I considered how strange and unnatural it felt to be starting again from the beginning, after having just given the final lecture to the class that finished only a few days earlier. I had invested myself in bringing the students strategically, step by step, through all the new ideas, right through to the end of the course, and to the grand finale of the final exam, only to press rewind and start again. Wallowing in my thoughts about how curious it seemed to be starting anew, I stopped at the local coffee house, hoping my usual might lift my waning spirits. Then I continued on to campus, where I would trek the familiar route to the lecture hall and greet the new and bigger group, because fall brings a new onslaught of students. I would introduce myself, the topics, and set the tone for the sixteen-week semester ahead, hoping to display the enthusiasm they expected and that I expect of myself. It was the first day of school for them, and for many the first day of college. It would be our first day together, and I was about to set the first impression they would have of me. The more I indulged my imagination, the more Herculean the task seemed, especially if I allowed myself to get swept up in the scene unfolding in my mind, how I would walk into the classroom, rolling backpack in tow, all eyes on me, their owners wondering what to expect. That's her. They would guess it by the rolling bag, and my parking it in front of the big desk in front of the huge room would settle the question. She looks nice, or she looks mean. I would relieve the bag of its contents, the newly printed three-page roster of unknown names, the stack of double-sided syllabi and sundry early handouts, while self-consciously avoiding eye contact, defensively recoiling from the weight of their gaze. While waiting for the green arrow at the familiar Ocean Park light, I entertained myself with vague memories of back-to-school days when I was a kid. Every September, as if in conspiracy with the school calendar, L.A.'s notorious marine layer, whose coolness and softness I now love, would cover the city until noon. Through my young eyes it was as if the sky was casting a dismal pall over what was supposed to be an exciting reunion of teachers, students, and friends. It was the day that interrupted the lazy and agreeable inertia of summer, the day of the well-known, very palpable, but wholly unspeakable pressure that exists between kids to size each other up and sort themselves into hierarchical status groups. At that age, students think the teachers can't wait to get there. It seemed impossible to imagine that teachers had any existence beyond the walls of the classroom, In some unarticulated way, I fancied they must live in the classroom, behind the walls, and then crawl out from some secret hole every September, eager to get their hands on our thick stacks of paper. I would have been shocked to hear the truth. Teachers sometimes can't wait for you to leave the room, and they want the three o'clock bell to ring more than you do. Now, as a teacher myself, I have been entrusted with the task of explaining philosophy to curious young minds— Part of my task in a traditional class on Western philosophy is to tell them it's based in wonder. From the Greek words for love and wisdom, it is the meta-discipline that seeks an understanding of knowledge. What it is, if it's possible, and if so, what are its limits? 
In the characteristic spirit of curiosity that laid the template of modern-day scientific inquiry, it eschews dogma in favour of reason and pursues only consistent beliefs that lead to truth. But I found that truth only happens in the crux of the moment, when the theories and logical wordplay are superseded by the immediacy of the present moment. This state of presence reveals a stillness that was previously concealed. When Socrates spoke of liberation, he described a freedom that comes from knowing your own mind, from analysing its sum of beliefs and weeding out the unsupported ones in deference to the verified and true. The unexamined life is not worth living, he famously announced. But in the Eastern wisdom traditions, liberation means to break free of the hindrance of the mind and its neurotic tendency to examine and overanalyse everything. It is to open up into the vibrancy of the present moment without conditions. It is permission to release all those busy thoughts. It is a gleeful and spontaneous opening that pacifies instantly what is known in Buddhism as the monkey mind. It is to wake up, and it is to know that this kind of freedom isn't found in theories. For a teacher fighting the onslaught of burnout, driving to the classroom is worse than being there. It is where you anticipate your day, and where you torment yourself, asking incredulously, Do I really have to talk about free will again? It is exactly where aversion presents itself, and where you begin to feel like a broken record, singing the same old verses one more time.